Welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, Prativa Baral. She's an epidemiologist who founded a special organization to help scientists better communicate with the public. The lessons learned she shares can help anyone get their message heard. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. If you do the work, but no one notices it, does it matter? It absolutely does matter. But if you're able to communicate it, and so more people can get inspired from your ideas, more people can get inspired from your research, come up with new questions, then we're one step closer to solving some of the challenges, some of the many challenges that we're facing today. Scientists work on the front line, tackling some of the world's most pressing problems. But thanks to jargon and technical talk, most people won't understand them, the importance of their work, or how they can help scale solutions. Prativa Burrell knows this well. She's an epidemiologist and PhD candidate at John Hopkins. She's also a global health professional who is looking to help the world get more prepared for the next global health emergency. She has worked in a number of capacities with global organizations like the UN, the World Health Organization, the World Bank, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But in her work, one clear need has stood out, the need for clear, jargon-free communication. COVID drove home the life or death consequences of science talk that people don't understand or trust. And as new pandemics and technological shifts are around the corner, it will be even more important for academics, scientists, and technologists to help people make sense of the changing world around them. To this end, she co-founded a special social enterprise, Let Science Connect. This initiative uses coaching and workshops in science communications to train experts and bridge the understanding gaps between them and the rest of the world. Their takeaways don't just make science more accessible and useful. They can help any leader in any sector speak more simply, more clearly, and better connect their message with the people they most want to reach. We will get into all of that. But first, we'll get back to basics, and she'll share with me her definition of health. That is the million dollar question. And I think most people, when they think about health, they think about hospitals, they think about health systems, they think about um, taking a biomedical lens to what it means to be healthy. And what I want people to know, and a lot of my work is on taking that level of health and elevating it. Um, Because health is not just about your physical body, it's about where you live, what you do, where you work, uh, your surroundings, your environment impacts you, your social capital, your social circumstances impact your health. And I think at this point, especially three years into the pandemic, we've seen that there are these upstream variables like inequality, like um, these determinants that are harder to measure, but that are so important and that impact our health. You know, we've seen that with COVID, uh, people with uh, lower socioeconomic status had much, much more challenging circumstances in dealing with COVID than people who had the resources to be able to protect themselves, to have PPE, to have all of that. So to me, health is more than just about physical health. It's about your mental health. It's about your social health. It's about health and your well-being. Are you able to thrive in this world beyond just survive? 
Um, and you have an initiative with the university that uh, sort of looks at tracking these sort of not, not often measurable uh, things. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So that's exactly um, what I was referring to earlier. What we're trying to do is recognize that a lot of the health emergencies that we are dealing with and that we will be dealing with in the future, whether it's climate uh, or other pandemics or other infectious diseases, are exacerbated by these other circumstances beyond your health. So what I mean by that is your social, your technological, your economic, your environmental, and the political factors all play a role in whether a health emergency will become a health emergency or can be dealt with well before it becomes this large global scale issue. And so that's what we're trying to put our emphasis on and um, focus on is really to say, hey, if we want to prepare for the next health emergencies, it's not enough for us to say, um, let's strengthen our health systems. That is a very, very vital. But beyond that, we need to be looking at these bigger factors and seeing that connection between these bigger factors and um, health emergencies. So again, what I mentioned about inequality, about public trust um, in government, public trust in science, all of these things, you know, economic inequalities, all of these things play a role in our health. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do is to see how can we monitor it? How can we measure it? And how can we take that measurement and say, oh, we need to be able to deal with this issue because we're not prepared for the next pandemic or emergency or what have you. And some of these less measurable variables, um, just for to kind of level set with people, um, what are those? So a lot of the times what we're dealing with is things like climate change or inequality or trust. These are things that are really hard to quantify. Um, so what we try to do is to find proxies. So equivalent things, equivalent ways of trying to measure these things. They're not perfect, but we need to start somewhere. And that's what we're, my team is trying to do is to say, okay, if we were to measure trust, how would we go about doing it? Are there proxies that exist that we can use that will, in some ways, give us some equivalence of what it is that's happening in the population? And so it's really, really challenging work because it's different from, let's say, measuring a temperature, right? You know exactly it's a degree Celsius or Fahrenheit, whereas when we're talking about these social factors, it's nuanced. There's context involved and everything is so interdependent. And so trying to take apart these little or big variables, I should say, and actually measure and monitor them is a really difficult challenge, but it's an important one that we need to understand. And, and how do you measure something like trust? So a lot of the times trust is measured through surveys and we try to be as representative as possible to get uh, the feedback of the people that we want to understand. But it's with surveys, it's an important tool, but of course there are biases. And so, you know, it's not just about looking at the quantitative measure with things like trust. You want to contextualize that with qualitative data as well. And with qualitative data, um, that's when you talk to people to try to understand why they are feeling the way they are feeling. It's harder to get get that level of understanding at a global scale because it's so much work, right? You're asking people qualitatively, you're having conversations, you're meeting with communities versus if we were to measure something like a temperature, it's quantitative. You can get in, get out, and you can get a lot more data out of it. So the work that we're doing, it's more mixed methods, I would say, because you're trying to capture both the quantitative side, but also the qualitative side. What are these other mixed methods, other uh, methods you guys are using? Our role uh, at the university is less about the doing the data collection, more about uh, developing a framework that will allow other people and big organizations to, to do this. Also, you have an initiative that provides training and workshops for academics and researchers. Uh, tell me a little bit about this training. So I'm super passionate about this, and that's because acad as academics, as researchers, we're not incentivized to speak to other people. And what I mean by that is that 
When we publish, it's often to our bubble. It's people that are other experts in our field. When we go to conferences, we speak to other people in our field. And so all of a sudden, we had the pandemic. And all of a sudden, we were put in the limelight because people wanted to know what was going on. The science was changing. The scientific process was highlighted. And academics had to go in front and try to explain that. But the issue is we've never had any training in it because we were never incentivized to get that training. And so what I what I realized is that growing up, I did a lot of public speaking. I I did a lot of um, working in other spaces beyond academia. And what I realized is communications is one of the most important tools and training skills that we need to have as academics. And so what I started was to develop these workshops with academics and researchers and to show them that it's so important to speak to the public. And they're doing it already. But the the issue is, how do we do it in a way that the public can understand? And as I said, with COVID, what happened was most people, when they think of the science, they think of the final output. But all of a sudden with COVID, things were changing so quickly. The science was changing, the evidence was changing. And so to be able to communicate that uncertainty and that changing science became even more important. Um, And that's why I started this because I firmly believe that scientists are doing such incredible work. And if we're able to share that to the public, to the audience, to to various audiences, to the private sector, to governments, whoever it is that you're speaking with, if you're able to effectively communicate your science, then the world is your oyster, right? You can do so much because then you can forge connections between other scientific teams that might be doing similar work. You can Um, because a lot of the challenges that we're facing are very interconnected. So at Davos, um, I went to lots of panels on the intersection of climate and health. And so we need not just academics to be able to speak to a general public, we also need them to be able to speak to each other experts in other fields so that the solutions that we research on or hypothesize on can have all of these different lenses. And to be able to do that, we need to communicate effectively. What comprises this training? Yes. So we have a couple of different um, lenses that we take. One is a one-on-one session. So for instance, if academics have a pitch that they need to do to a um, to uh, the pu- private sector, for example, or a grant that they're writing or media, because a lot of us have been thrown into the media the last couple of years, how do you do that? And part of it is verbal part of it is nonverbal. And so doing all of that one-on-one sessions, a little bit like coaching, depending on our, mm. our client's needs. And then the other piece is workshops. And this part is really, really interesting and exciting. And that's because we make them very, very interactive, right? So it's not an academic exercise. We don't go in front and say, this is how you communicate here, the slides. What we really try to do is to make them communicate to us during those workshops. So for instance, one exercise that we do is we'll provide a very technical paper of that person's field or that group's field, and we'll say, okay, explain this to me as if you were speaking to your niece. Explain it to me as if you were speaking to your grandmother, as if you were speaking to a 15-year-old, you know, a high schooler. And the idea is to make them see that connection between themselves and someone in their family, for instance, so that they can see, okay, I don't have to go into all of this technical jargon. At the end of the day, the framework that we want our researchers to use when they're speaking to a non-technical audience is, what is it? Why is it important and why should we care about it? And that's it. It's simple. It's just going layers and layers above to get that big picture so that people can understand 
okay, I see why this is important and I see the value in your work and I want to know more. Um, so that's one of the exercises that we do, but we have a bunch of different workshops um, that we that we really try to make as interactive as possible. One other piece that we work on is also the confidence piece, right? So we've seen uh, with the COVID pandemic as well that sometimes there's a lot of misinformation that's circulated because the person that's speaking in front of the camera says it with such confidence, even if the data or the evidence doesn't back it up. And so part of the challenge and the the, um, potential for academics and researchers is not just to communicate their work in a way that that shows the value of their work, but also to do it with confidence so that people can can understand the value as well. And so when I meant the nonverbal and the ver verbal piece, I think both aspects of that are super important. And so that's what we're doing. We're training academics and researchers, and we're really, really excited to scale it up. Uh, right now, we're mostly focused in Canada. But what we would like to do in the long term is to standardize this process. And as I said, I'm part of the Global Shapers community and leverage that community to see if this can be something that can be done internationally, because this is not a Western, North American, European problem. It's a problem that exists worldwide. And so being able to share this communication approach that's very specific to science as opposed to general communications is something that I would love to see scaled up everywhere around the world. And how many people have you uh, helped so far? It's so many. <laughs> uh, we we haven't started counting. So essentially what I started at as was as an instructor at Hopkins. So I started teaching this class as part of the teaching team. Um, so it's hundreds of mostly PhD students and DRPH students. Um, and then this year we said, okay, we have to move beyond just our individual university. So it's myself and my business partner who are working on this. And now we've started expanding it to all other universities. And so the, the potential for the number of academics that will be trained under us is, is so huge. And I'm excited to get started. At this point, has it been maybe in the hundreds or do you think the thousands? I would say probably in the thousands. And uh, is there, for people listening, you know, if, uh, there's a lot of people that are experts that are listening to this. Mm -hmm. If they were going to look at their own writing, uh, are there sort of very, very common things that are usually, usually things that people can look at if they're going to try to simplify or sort of de-jargonify their work? What questions should they ask themselves? Yes. Yeah, so this was a, an advice that someone um, gave me that I value still to this day. And it's, you don't want to sound like you're the smartest person in the room. That is not the goal of communications. What you're trying to do is to force that connection with your audience and share your knowledge and your values so that they can understand a part of the world in a much better light. And I think at the end of the day, the big picture is that. I think academics are trained to use jargon because it's a very technical field. And like I said, we're incentivized to use that type of language. So when we write we use a lot of jargon. We want to be as specific as possible because we're excited about our work and we want to share all the specifics of our work. But I think when you're speaking to a non-technical audience, it's really important to kind of take off that cape and say, okay, my goal here is not to sound as if I'm presenting to my dean or to my you know, academic friend. It's really to make it simple and make it clear. And so going back to the framework, what is it? Why is it important? And what, what, what is it that you're working on? And just keeping it straight and clean and remove some of the jargon. Um, and like I said, you're not trying to sound like you're the smartest person in a room. You're not in a conference. You're really trying to get your work across and make people understand what you're working on. Uh, how important is um, maybe asking people to sort of say, hey, what's the before and after? Like so that they can really identify um, what the change is. Well, it's so important because like I said, in this world or in a lot of the transnational challenges that we're facing, academics are more and more needing to come out of our academic bubble. We need to work with private 
you know, public-private partnerships is something that we discussed, discussed a lot this week. So we need to be working with a lot of different stakeholders if we want to come up with appropriate solutions that will actually help us with some of these challenges that we're dealing with. And so I think it's so important to just be able to, you know, one thing that we do in our training is a 60-second pitch. So how much can you fit into a 60-second pitch uh, of your research, of your work? And that's kind of, that goes to your before and after question. Are you able to succinctly and precisely and in a way that showcases your work without using all the jargon in 60 seconds? And if you can, then I think you've solved a big challenge that we as academics are facing is you're able to speak to a number of stakeholders and tweak it based on your audience and say, okay, I made them understand why my work is important. How can we collaborate and how can we do something about whatever it is that we're currently working on? Is there also a value in them sort of borrowing from other professions? You know, like I'm a trained Absolutely. as a journalist and uh, one of the things that, that we would always be drilled into is, you know, can you tell the story in six words, right? Yes. <laughs> Which usually means that one of those words is a verb. Usually probably the second word yes. is a verb. The first one is a noun. So-and-so did blah, blah, blah. Right. And so the end of that is the impact. Right. So like, is, is is it something you would also recommend to be like, Hey, can you borrow? It's okay. (laughs) Absolutely. And in fact, this is what we use. It's a storytelling method, right? So what we've noticed, and there's tons of studies on this is that if you want to get your, your points across showing data and evidence is not really going to do as much impact as you would want it to. Um, especially if you're talking to people who have fixed values, especially nowadays with science being so politicized, um, throwing data and big numbers at people is not going to do what you want to to do, which is to get them to understand why you're working on what you're working. And so what we often use in the workshops is the storytelling method. And that's exactly like you said, you have the antagonist, you have the protagonist, and then you have the impact piece. So putting it into that framework really helps because at the end of the day, science is about it's a story, right? It's about how do we understand the world in a better way? And if you can think about about communications through that lens, and specifically scientific communications through that lens, I think it makes it so much more clearer because you're just explaining a story to a person, to an audience, and you're tweaking that story depending on what that audience needs from you. So the storytelling technique is something that we borrowed from journalism and we use it all the time. Is there anything we've been exposed to the science of the communication? What, what's, um, what's uh, effective these surveys and things. Is there anything that surprised you? They're like, oh gosh, I didn't think about that. Yeah, well, I think something that I've been surprised with is um, is using marketing techniques. You know, everything in academia is so siloed. And I think exactly like you said, being able to borrow some of these methods from other spaces that have used these techniques for decades since the very beginning is something that I'm learning more and more how to incorporate into these trainings. You know, at the end of the day, science communications is a form of marketing. You're trying to get a point across. You're trying to show the value of your work. And so that, I would say, was a connection that I hadn't initially made, even though now it's like, duh, of course it's obvious. So yes, I think that that would be it. Well, and I think it's an interesting point too, because a lot of academics, their um, audience is uh, most often going to be people reading academic journals exactly. and things like that. Exactly. And you can do a very uh, nuanced headline with yes. a couple words. Yes. Uh, but uh, if you're going to be talking to the public in a mass way, yeah. chances are the social or digital uh, elements. And so you need to think like a marketer, uh, you know, you need to have, again, it's okay to steal from, (laughs) steal from marketing, steal from that. And it's not cheating to go make a very clear sentence that says this and that, and we'll do that. That's right. And one thing that I, um, like I said, I did a lot of media uh, because of COVID the last couple of years. And one thing that I learned on the job is to show that exactly like you said, the clips that the producers use sometimes are very, very short, right? 
right? The news cycle, you know, they're not going to put your full 30-minute interview. They're going to take a segment of what you're saying. And so it's kind of taught me to also be very precise with my work and precise with the way that I speak um, because one sentence or one segment of what I said might be used. And so putting that into context and saying, okay, I can't go into technical details about the virus or about our immune system. All I can say is, why is this important? Why does this matter to the public? And what is it, the, the central piece of what they need to know? And and uh, why did you think that this initiative was, uh, personally, you said you'd done all these interviews, you know, like, w- w- did that help drive why you thought, gosh, people need this training? Yes. Well, I mean, I've seen so many incredible scientists who've done such great work and then go in front of the public and try to explain the specific details of their work. And you, you notice that the public kind of doesn't necessarily want to get the specifics. They want to know, how is this going to affect me? Am I in danger? Is my family in danger? How do I protect my community with respect to COVID? And I think that was just an aha moment for me because, again, I'm a PhD candidate at Hopkins and uh, part of my training in all of my academic institutions, we've never, it's never been a focus. Communications has never been a focus. But I think more so now more than ever, seeing how important it is for us to collaborate with other fields, with other spaces, we need to know how to communicate. If you do the work and, but no one notices it, does it matter? It absolutely does matter. But if you're able to communicate it, and so more people can get inspired from your ideas, more people can get inspired from your research, come up with new questions, then we're one step closer to solving some of the challenges, some of the many challenges that we're facing today. Is there a book you recommend? Yes, my favorite book that I read right before coming to Davos actually was Invisible Women. And it completely changed the way that I saw data, the way that I saw um, design, how we design our communities, how we design our buildings, how we design our spaces. Um, And it's had a really profound impact on the way that I view um, my space and my work um, because... Yes. So I would recommend everybody to read it, particularly men, because I think it's important for us to understand how data biases, so many data biases exist in the way that our world has been constructed. Sure. And how would that change someone? Well, it changes everything, right? Um, When we're thinking about, for example, clinical trials, when we're thinking about medicine, when we're thinking about where is it that we're testing these really important interventions? And if our data majority, uh, the majority of the data comes from a particular um, demographic, and usually it's men, and usually it's white men. Um, what does it mean for the rest of us who do not have that weight or that height or those, you know, that those demographics? And so that would change everything. From um, if you read the book, you know, there's the everything from you know snow plowing schedules to uh, park spaces and the how they've been designed. All of that is biased by data. And so if the data that we're feeding into it is very particular and only requires um, the input from a particular demographic, then that means the rest of us are not represented and the rest of us are less safe. Everything from seatbelts to medicine to clinical trials, it impacts the way that we live. It impacts the way that our health is affected and it impacts everything, right? Um, What should leaders prioritize for the new year ahead? Huh. I can talk about that for hours. I think, again, I'm an epidemiologist. And so what I would say is you cannot have a healthy economy. You cannot have a productive workforce, which is a, a lot of the discussions that we've had this year and da- this week in Davos without a healthy population. And so I would urge all leaders to look at health from a holistic lens, not just from a biomedical lens, and say that we need to be paying attention to these social factors. We need to be paying attention to the environmental factors, because as much as you 
want a thriving economy, you cannot have that if you don't have a healthy population. That was Prativa Boral. Thanks to her, and thanks so much to you for listening. A transcript of this episode and my colleagues' episodes, Radio Davos and the Book Club Podcast, is available at weth.ch slash podcasts. This episode of Meet the Leader was presented and produced by me, with Juan Toran as studio engineer, Taz Kelleher as editor, and Gareth Nolan driving studio production. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina with the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.